Hey, it's Jason Cunningham and welcome back to another edition of Save My Business, proudly presented by Zero. This podcast shares stories of how entrepreneurs and small and medium-sized business owners have figured out how to survive and thrive in challenging times to hopefully offer some inspiration to our listeners. Now, today's guest is Dr. Pat Oad. He's a neurologist, which I'm telling you is the closest thing we're ever going to ha- get to having a brain surgeon on our show. He's an entrepreneur, a Meditech entrepreneur, which employs over 70 people. He's a father of three, and he's dead set a good bloke. Dr. Pat, welcome to the show. Jase, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the intro. It's almost like you wrote it yourself, pal. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Doc, we often start off these conversations by talking to business owners about how they cope through COVID. Now, I think your business would have looked a little bit different to a lot of businesses. Tell me how your journey was in the height of COVID. Yeah, wow. Um, I was involved with a lot of different things as the pandemic hit. I can remember back at the end of 2019 when the first case um, was reported uh, in China and no one knew what to really make of it. Now, from my perspective at that stage, I was working in a very large public hospital um, that had a lot of acute care requirements, uh, a lot of uh, people to take care of, but nobody really knew. Everyone was a bit nervous. Yeah. Then from the business side of things, we were running our practices and we didn't know what it would mean for them. Uh, and for our employees, we didn't know how things would play out. So uh, it was all a bit uncertain. And then when it really took off, the hospital just turned upside down. Yeah, I think right. everybody remembers. Uh, I remember one day I was um, on the wards heading down toward ICU yeah. and one of the nurses had put a big white sheet up in the corridor and it said, welcome to COVID land. Like it was in a, yeah, yeah. I mean, we laugh about it now. No, yeah. it, but, it, but it was a horrible I mean, time. I'm laughing about it and I probably shouldn't be. <laughs> it, was, it was very hard. Yeah. And, and we were protecting our staff by making sure that we're on skeleton staff so that we could always have backup. Meanwhile, a lot of the practices um, that were in the community, they were struggling because a lot of people didn't want to go into them. Uh, they didn't want to go into medical practices because they were f- fearful of getting sick. And a lot of healthcare professionals were fearful of getting sick and passing it on to the, their patients and their colleagues. So the, just the world turned upside down. And I remember um, we needed to switch to telehealth for a lot of the doctors. Uh, and I called around, you know, all the JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman and everybody to try and get some webcams. And they were all sold out, all the big accountancy firms actually. Yeah, we did. And bought them all. <laughs> and, and so I hopped in the car with my wife and we drove to Wollongong to get the last three, I think, mm. um, webcams on the East Coast yeah, right. and, and installed them on a Sunday with my daughter at the practices. Mm. So, you know, I, I could tell you story after story, yeah. but it was amazing. And, and you popped up a respiratory clinic as well? Yeah, so look, when things got really serious, the government called out for assistance really to protect the GPs, uh, which was essential because there are a lot of respiratory illness uh, in the community through winter ordinarily. Yeah. And then when COVID hit, there was all the uncertainty and increased danger. So the purpose of the respiratory clinics was to look after and triage respiratory illness away from regular general practice so that it could be dealt with safely and in a way that meant that there could be good follow-up and connection with regular GPs. So we were quite um, proactive and partnered with the Department of Health to stand up a respiratory clinic mm-hmm. and uh, look after um, people in the inner west of Sydney. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, that was, that was a real challenge at the time. We recruited about 20 nurses within the space of about three or four weeks and about eight or nine general practitioners, which have really dedicated their, a big part of their lives to serving the community throughout the pandemic. 
Um, but yeah, it look, we've looked after a lot of families throughout that and I, I really think and hope that it helped a lot of the community general practices. Yeah, I, I, no doubt you did, mate. Um, I'm going to go on a tangent here. There's a school of thought that says it's, uh, it's a bit of a sham. Um, it's just the flu. Um, it's a chest cold. You're a guy that's studied post uh, high school for 13 years. Mm. You're a GP, you're a neurologist, uh, you've been studying for a long time. I don't know, what are you, 38, 39 years old? So you've been studying for two-thirds of your life, Doc. Um, what's your take on it? Look, I mean, you know, as, as doctors, um, infectious diseases is one of the things that we're all taught no matter what specialty you go into mm-hmm. and it's infectious diseases throughout history have been one of the biggest if not the biggest killer um, uh, throughout the world and and still are in many developing countries infectious diseases whether they're gastro diseases or respiratory illnesses um, are devastating and at different stages we've been fortunate enough to have vaccines developed that have almost eradicated mm-hmm. many infectious diseases um, I think that our generation has been fortunate up until the pandemic because they had not really witnessed uh, the devastation that infectious diseases uh, can have on communities and large populations. Uh, There's no doubt about it, coronavirus, COVID-19 was a very, very um, uh, virulent and what that means is essentially severe uh, infection and it was also spread very quickly and and the, and the spread of it was really the problem. Mm. Um, so in a sense, if it was not as uh, spreadable or not as transmissible as it was, we would have been able to manage it more easily because the flow of, of, of mm. uh, illness would have been manageable at hospitals. But having worked in the hospitals uh, and work, working with my infectious disease and epidemiology colleagues, this is a once in a generation, hopefully, uh, event and will be better um, uh, safeguarded against it next time this kind of thing occurs. But I mean, I've you know I've had patients that have uh, that have died as yeah, a result wow. of coronavirus that would never have, and at the prime of their life. Um, so there's just no doubt about it from a scientific and epidemiology perspective. Yeah. It's a very real pandemic. Yeah, um, and I just wanted to get that out there because it's not often that people get to hear from a real doctor. Um, uh, there's um, I, I, look, I know I, I caught coronavirus. I think it was about May 2020, May or June 2020, and I was horrified, embarrassed, and it was like I had leprosy, right? Uh, now I wear it as like a badge of honour. You know, I was like an early adopter, those guys that queue up outside the uh, iPhone shop to get there, you know, to get the first iPhone. and say, Carnes has got corona. Uh, so let's, let's move on. Um, what I find interesting, uh, you're a bit of a dichotomy in the fact that you are a technician and a specialist and, you know, I know that um, neurology is your specialist field. I know you specialise in helping people with multiple sclerosis, which is, I think, wonderful. And, you know, when, when, when you talk to people who've got a job, you know, I'm an accountant, uh, you know, the people are restaurateurs and, uh, you know, Chev here is a marketing guru and all that sort of stuff. But your, your job is more of a vocation. And, and when I, whenever I've communicated with you, you, you genuinely care about the community and, uh, you generally care about uh, the good that you do, not just the dollar that you turn, but you do turn a pretty good dollar, which is good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me, you've, you've got three physical GP practices. Mm. Um, how long have you been in business for? Yeah, business is an interesting thing for me um, in that 
you know, generally speaking, when you go through medical school um, and you pick a specialty that you're interested in and you go down that path, it's very super specialised and focused. Yeah. And there isn't really much room to think about business ideas or innovation along that pathway until really you typically get to a point where you want to build your own practice or set it up. That's the classical pathway. I think for me, I was always interested in how I could contribute in diverse and creative ways beyond that one-to-one care without leaving the one-to-one care behind at all. I'm, I love that. I think helping one person at a time is one of the only real true ways you can help somebody. But there are certainly solutions that need to be developed to improve healthcare. And I thought, you know, I could have a crack at that. I started off um, thinking about medical education and that was my f- first foray, you know, I guess, into a business where as a trainee specialist, before I'd finished my specialisation, um, started running education courses for other specialist trainees wanting to pass their exams. And that was a way of me using the IP up here that I developed over time. I'd passed my exams and passing that on to people who wanted to and mentoring them. That was really rewarding and it continues to be and there are a number of courses that continue to be run and I, I really enjoy that. But then um, beyond that, I thought, oh, you know, I mean, I, I thought that there's real business I see going on out there, real development and innovation. So I got curious about that and started to meet some new people. And, you know, I, I was only a year after I'd, um, I'd finished my specialisation. I'd recently married at that time at a one-year-old. Mm. And I thought, what does it take to develop a healthcare model and build practices? What are the, what are the aspects of that? And, uh, and I started to learn. So um, I, I then met my business partner, Danny Mann. Yeah, look, I, I've got to say, I, obviously I know Danny really well. And yeah. in the spirit of full disclosure, you guys are clients of ours and, and great friends of ours. And I, I, you know, in 25 years, I've spoken to many business owners, uh, 10,000, 20,000, I, I couldn't tell you. But what I see that really works is the synergy that you both bring to the table. Neither of you really cross over into either's field, you know, and, and you've got different strengths that complement each other. And, and when I see you two work and collaborate, you're the true definition of synergy, where the whole becomes greater, much greater than the sum of the parts. And I, I just love how you guys work together. You went from physical businesses to this amazing business, CU Health, which is, you know, it's a startup business. It's it's part medicine, part tech, and 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 in layman's terms, and to share with it with our viewers and our listeners, the best way I describe it because we subscribe to the offering, is it's an online allied health offering charged to the business owner or to the business, and the business owner pays the cost for all their employees to tap into medical help, whether it be a GP, a dietitian, a psychologist, mindfulness, health coach, for every single one of their employees. And for mine, I find it, I find that it's, it's paramount in today's market. The, hard, the single hardest thing we have to do as, these, as employees is to attract and retain key people, finding talent, not only finding them, but holding on to them. And when we go out to our future employees or our current team members and we share with them our partnership with CU Health and the fact that at any point in time, one of our team members can log on, book an appointment with a GP, book an appointment with a psychologist, have a conversation in the privacy of their own home or an office at no cost to them. And the other big thing is they don't have to get in their car, find a car park, wait in a waiting room, take a ticket like at the butchers or any of that sort of rubbish. They get in and get access to it. They get a script sent to their phone. I mean, it's 
it's it's amazing. What took you on that journey? So, I mean, this is really that leap of faith in my business journey, our mm. CU Health. And um, the, the, the remarkable thing about that was um, Danny and I discussed the idea of a virtual clinic or a virtual practice before the pandemic. Um, six months prior, we started building the blueprint on butcher's paper, mm. you know, and, and the reason that we thought of it was we thought, look, we seem to understand now how to run a good general practice. And what I mean by that is, building a really great team that works together, a good culture um, where you build loyalty with the patients, uh, you care for them. And there's a big thing in, in medicine and called, called, called continuity of care. Mm. Continuity of care is one of those key things where you build a long-term high-trust relationship with the people you look after, which means they're going to come back and you're going to make a difference. It's not just transactional. Mm. So for us, that was key to maintain continuity of care. So the, the brainchild was could we map all the good values of team-based multidisciplinary care and long-term continuity of care across to the digital world and then no longer have to be boxed in by bricks and mortar but deliver that to people wherever they needed it. And it became clear to us that businesses were communities, just like the local communities that we look after in general practice, but we could take care of those communities no matter where they were employed or where they were working. And then we started doing a bit more research and it became very clear that there's an imperative to invest in the well-being of employees so that they are able to do their best work. So employers have a vested interest in looking after their employees really from a business imperative. And so for us, it was like, well, you know, we need to, we want to do good healthcare. We want to improve every individual's life. But then in order to make it a business, it needed to make sense. Now, this is the interesting thing. When we first started talking about CE Health and when I first got involved with your business and, and talking with you and Danny, what... Yeah, the things that you kept harping on about was absenteeism and presenteeism, Mm. right? And and you were really talking about how it could help the business, uh, you know, increase efficiency, uh, increase productivity, grow the capacity of the organisation, right? And that was your big ticket item, if you like. You fast forward to today and the way I communicated about your business to other people that I talk to is I, I don't necessarily focus on that. I, I focus on um, showing your team members that you actually genuinely care. Yeah. Uh, and because the labour market is so tight at the moment, not just, well, in every industry. I, I know in the accounting industry is really, really, really tough. And so our point of difference, we, we you know, we wear as a badge of honour, a bit like the COVID badge of honour on our EV, on our employee value proposition, is our partnership with CU Health. Yeah. And at, at, at a small cost... Because um, I, I, I often, you know, my business partners and I sit around the table and we talk about the cost of recruitment. You talk about the cost of when you've got staff turnover, how much you actually downtime and all that sort of stuff. For 800 bucks a year or whatever it is, and I mean, we're on the early bird special, which is great as well. But for a minimal cost to uh, retain a key person, why wouldn't you? And then uh, the way our culture, most cultures, most business cultures have that moral compass where they do genuinely care. Yeah. About their team, I agree. Right, and so you know, and I and I think about the crossover when we were when we we're in lockdown and out of lockdown and back in lockdown and working from home, and we didn't know really what was going on. You know, a, a lot of people were working from home. Well, there was a period in Melbourne where I don't know we were working from home for about seven years or something, and we were working from home where you could do three hours of work, drive to see the doctor, or go and see a psychologist, or run off to the supermarket, do all that sort of stuff. Now we're coming back into the office. That becomes a bit trickier. 
And now I see that the absentee or the yeah the absenteeism where people taking a day off to go and see the doctor or yeah. taking half a day off to see a doctor, they don't need to do that anymore. Now, obviously, there's some things you can't do online. For sure. Uh, you know, it's pretty hard to, you know, get a prostate examination. <laughs> it's hard to do that in person too, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So tell me about the uptake of the offering and, and where yeah. that's going. So, I mean, you, you highlighted some key points and I've, it's been a learning process for us and for mm. me, speaking to business leaders, speaking to chief HR officers, speaking to small businesses, medium-sized, mm. everybody across all business sectors, small or large, are facing this question, how do we demonstrate care and connection with our teams? People are working from home now. Mm. They're working in the office a bit. It's harder to stay in touch with them. It's just, sorry to cut across you. The other point is, and how much should we really care? Yeah. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, or but I like to address the elephant in the room. I mean, we've got to care for our team members, but, I mean, how far do we go? And I think, I'll, I think I can answer. As a business owner now, speaking frankly, so not yeah. being a doctor for a second, mm. the things that keep me up at night and that I think affect me emotionally and burden me and take me away from other core business are two real things for me. One is cash flow. How much money's in the tin? <laughs> you know, can we pay everybody on time, pay our suppliers, vendors, all of those things, and keep the wheels in motion whilst we're growing? That's one. The other side is is the well-being of the team. Because when there's poor morale or lack of direction or a flatness in the team or one person's having a difficult time, it ends up affecting the rest of the team like a like dominoes. Mm. And if there was some sort of uh, tool or process that was in place that could help mitigate that and prevent yeah. that, that's worth so much to me because it means that there's a safeguard. Now, you can't prevent everything, but I think that, that taking a step back from CU Health, it's just thinking about what are what is available to business owners in very efficient, effective, high-value ways to protect them against workforce instability, to yeah. protect them against employee disharmony, to protect them against the ups and downs of mental health problems that affect their, their employees. I think that if you could take that burden off an employer's hands or at least partner with them to take it off their hands, that's a great thing. It's also a good safeguard. My, my business partner, Robbie Haddad, talks about um, the fact that, you know, one of our core values is we generally care about our team and our customers. But he said, Jay, we've got to be careful because we're not qualified psychologists, we're not qualified doctors. Uh, and so there's a bit of a safeguard in that. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, you know, prevention's better than a cure. Do you like that little play on words there with a the doctor? I love yeah, it. yeah, well you've heard that yeah. a couple Fantastic. of times before. Well, count on you, buddy. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, what, that, Rob's, Rob's big on that. And that's one of the reasons why Rob jumped at the chance of, of tapping into CU Health because we all have various different challenges. And you know, those psychological challenges uh, are really coming to the surface now as a result of the pandemic, but it also it's becoming a lot more accepted in the community to have a conversation with a psychologist where previously you'd do it, you know, uh, behind closed doors yeah. or, or keep it on the lowdown. Now everybody's got a psychologist, you know what I mean? But it, what I think the other aspect is it's the protection in the event that you might have a work safe issue, for example, and you're addressing that sooner rather than later. Well, I mean, where, where we come into it and what you said is, is spot on in that there has been a stigma about our mental health um, issues and discussing them over the time. One of the uh, essential parts of the model for CU Health is to destigmatize health and wellbeing altogether. So you might be, 
you might use CU Health to get a repeat prescription. You might use it because you want to talk about a sore foot or you might want to talk about it because you're having trouble falling pregnant. You might all, all kinds of things, but it may also be anxiety, mental health issues. And, and that way, when you're using the service, it's just like, well, it's all the same, the mind, the body, it's all one, ah. it's all one human whole person process. Yeah. And that means you don't, when you're using the service, you're not yeah. sort of thinking, oh, John's using it because they're mentally unwell. Ah. No, they could be using it for any anything. And they were, that way it's just, it looks after the whole person and it starts to stop segmenting mental health as this. No, it's just a person, mm. well-being for a whole person. And that's really important part of the way our model, interconnected model works. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to do is do this as a running ad for CU Health. So, and I, only because I'm very passionate about the business, but I just relating back to my personal experience dealing with um, April and mm. my health coach and, uh, and she explained it that way. So that's a good thing for you. You know, she spoke about it holistically and, yeah. you know, have a conversation with the GP, have a conversation with the dietitian and have a conversation with the psychologist. And they all sort of tap in together and read off the same uh, term sheet, if you like. Oh, can I expense this? You finish year 12 <laughs> and you study for 13 fucking back. years. Like, seriously, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Look, the whole time you're working as well, so you kind of don't have oh, so much. I did a three-year accounting degree. Yeah. And at the end of that, I then found out I had to do my CPA and that was another three years part-time. Yeah. I was borderline ready to nick myself. And you did it for 13 years. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know much different because all my colleagues were doing the same thing. We were all sort of drinking coffees together. Do you have a hex debt of like 350 grand? Or <laughs> Mate, look, I mean, we pay it as we – the way that you – you know, it's, it's institutionalised. I'd say medicine is quite institutionalised. It's been around for a long time and there's a rite of passage. Mm. And so, you know, you finish school, you know, you start doing qualifications and med school and, and then you get out and you're an intern, you know, you're, you're early 20s and then you need to study all the way through – after hours when you're going to work and you've got a pager. And look, it's a crazy lifestyle um, in a lot of ways. But And you've punched out three kids or Vicky has. Um, you've got yeah, three kids. I'm not going to take credit for punching anything out. No, but, but you were involved in part of it, I'm I believe, sure. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I believe so. I haven't done the paternity test, yeah. but I believe so. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> they all look similar. Yeah, yeah. that's good. <laughs> they've at least got the – well, we know they've got the same mother. Now, we, I'm digressing and I should, probably should – uh, bring it back in uh, or else Chev, our producer, is going to get a little bit upset. Um, <clears throat> tell me what it's like setting up a startup tech business, huh? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. It's, what's that like? It's, it's, it's daunting. Yeah. It's daunting. Um, uh, let me, let me uh, put a disclaimer on that. Every business has been a startup, well, right? Correct. So Rob and I, we were a startup. That's right. But we were just two guys with two computers we had two offices. We drilled a hole in the wall. We put uh, a cable next to each other, and we were networked, right? But we were start, but not on the scale of what you guys. You were done. accounts payable. He was accounts receivable. <laughs> Left hand, right hand, yeah, debits exactly. and credits. That's Can the way I it works. Your call? <laughs> yeah. Look, um, look. I think this is how I differentiate them. Um, and I, I've, I, and I, I know you know your audience listen to this because they want to understand how they may be able to apply some practical tools to make their life easier as a business owner. And I and I don't want to talk about this startup thing like it's cool. And No, really at the fundamental level of sole trader to start with and I understood that and I had no idea, nothing to do really with ASIC except a little online form. Mm. And then registered first by first proprietary limited, you know, company 
And I started to understand that. And we ran it. When you run a medical practice, you're running a small business. Yeah. And cutting your teeth on a small business, for me, I have the utmost respect for small business. I think if you can run a small business well, you can run a very large company well because you measure the value of every dollar. You care about your people. You understand what really matters. And I think that that's just so important because we've seen in recent times a lot of the startups in the tech space, they grow and grow and grow, but without actually having uh, their feet firmly planted on the ground. Yeah. And that can really catch you out. So small businesses, small business understanding is key. I have the utmost respect for it. And I still, a big part of the way that I operate is with small business principles. But um, when you talk about an accountancy or a medical practice, the difference between that and an innovation startup is they've got predefined models of practice and business uh, operations. So, you know, when you're an accountant, you understand the classical model to grow an accountancy. Mm. When you run a general pre practice or another medical practice, you understand the model of growing your patient base, looking after them and, and how the pr practice runs. When you move into innovation and startup, banks don't understand what you're trying to do. Yeah. So you can't get debt finance, yeah. right? You have, to, you, have, you have to sort of believe in your vision, be really clear about it, uh, demonstrate that you've got the capacity to execute that vision and convince good people mm. and good investors that you're worth investing in. Mm. So you've got a moral obligation then yeah. to, to, to them. So you, firstly, there's a moral and an emotional obligation to those people to see it through, which is, which is tough in of itself. Then what you're doing is you're creating a blueprint for a new model and you've got very little reference frame to go off. So you're making decisions every day, small things and big things. Should the logo be like this? Should it not be like this? Right through to what does workflow look like? What kind of employees do we have? Does this job description even exist? In our and we've created job descriptions that we can't find elsewhere, but we've done our best to map them to typical things. So instead of having a receptionist, we've got a member services manager and all of these things. So what's daunting about it is you are venturing into the unknown, but always, at, uh, and I think this is the right way, we're always asking questions of people with experience and peers to sense check whether you're heading the right direction. It's very easy to spend money the wrong way mm. and then realise you've overcommitted one way or another. So that's what's hard about it. What, what I enjoy about uh, our relationship, uh, yeah. when we first met, uh, you know, I live in Melbourne and you live in Sydney and here we are in sunny Balmain today. And when we first met, it was over Zoom. And I remember you and your business partner, Danny, were on the call. Uh, Melanie, one of our associate directors, was at home. And, uh, and I sort of snuck into the office and was working from my office. And I remember the first words you said to me was, uh, uh, typically or quite often when I walk into the room, I'm the smartest person in the room. <laughs> and, and, and my first thought was, who does this bloke think he is? And then I looked around in my office and noticed there was no one else in the room. And I said, well, Dr. Pat, we've got one thing in common. I'm the smartest person in this room today. And, um, and I thought, well, I think I've got myself, I've got my hands full and I'm going to have a bit of a challenge with this guy because I think that there may be a sense that he might know everything. Fast forward two years mm -hmm. and you are one of the more inclusive decision makers that I've met. And typically that personality trait is not common with a specialist. So, you know, whether you're a specialist accountant or a specialist doctor or a specialist artist or whatever it is, typically, you know, you do think you know it all. But my relationship and engagement with you is you have sounded out many experts and you like to get other people's opinion based on their experience to sense check where you're going. And I think that's a wonderful trait. 
Well, th thanks, Jace. I mean, obviously it was a joke and I also was the only person in the room that day. Like, I'm pleased that you um, you worked out that it was a, a joke, yeah. although I am on no, um, But But putting that to one, uh, one side, I think actually that just comes from be because of my education, it actually has had the other effect where I have a great respect for expertise because yeah. I know how hard it is to get expertise. Yeah. So I... Um, when I come across somebody that has knowledge in a space that I don't and experience in a space that I don't, I have respect for them and their thoughts as much as I want them to have respect for mine. And, and therefore, you know, I, I, I make much more effective decisions. The, the key, though, is finding the right people to ask. Yeah. You know, so I think having a filter and understanding when to ask the right questions to whom is one of the key things. Otherwise, you can get confused by all the white noise. So it's a bit of intuition, and I'm so grateful to have had you uh, to have you in my circle as a as a friend and an adv advisor because I, I can't even look. I, I've lost count. I can't even carry in my mind the number of times that you've helped us. Oh, mate, thank you. That's uh, you want to just say that again? No, <laughs> no, thanks, mate. That's really kind of you. Um, what I'm keen to ask is um, the most common limiting resource that we all have in common is our access to time. Mm -hmm. There's 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. you got three physical practices that you own. You have a startup business, CU Health, uh, that you own obviously with your business partner. You've got your uh, education business, you're married, you're a father of three, mm. you specialise in the field that you specialise in, neurology. Um, how, do, how are you going balancing your time? Are you doing it effectively, do you think, or uh, honestly? This is one area where I, I'm very proud of the way that I've structured my time and it's been, I think, I think if I do have a skill, it's in optimization. Mm. You know, I think that if, if I do have a superpower, it's if I do have one, it's it's in understanding how to structure and prioritize my time and create processes um, and order such that I can shift the balance of what. I, so most of my time, a lot of my time, um, is spent focusing on that, so that I've got room to think and innovate. Um, the patients that I look after, are my absolute priority, and to them, when I'm being a doctor, there's no doubt about that. And that one-on-one -on -one care is predicated on my training and ongoing educational development. But that's very structured. Yeah. So medicine has the beauty of that structure. It's reliable yeah. and I don't need to think too hard about what to do next yeah. because it's just it has a – with that said, everything else, I, uh, I really need to give great thanks to my foundation, my network, my family. I mean, um, you know, my wife's a very intelligent lady, a public health officer herself, um, and she – uh, is a great partner in life um, and that helps me a lot. I also have an amazing broader family, my, my parents, my in-laws that support. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, when that old saying, when you want something done, ask a busy person. Yeah. I think that I fall into that category um, quite a, a lot and having to be put under the pressure and circumstances that I'm in have forced me. I mean, either sink or swim. Yeah. And it's forced me to find ways of swimming very effectively. So... I am, uh, I am managing it, but I've, I've created a flexibility and freedom in the way that I can allocate my time. Yeah. And, and I make sure 100% that I do what's required to reach the outcome. I've always reached the outcome. For me, I'm an outcomes-driven person. Yeah. I'm a goal-oriented goal, goal person. So 
Uh, that's all I can say about that. I'd have to show you my schedule for it to make sense. And also the time machine I've got and the, and, and the cloning machine I've got too. One of the things when you are a goal-orientated person or a results-driven person and I share a similar trait to you, one of the challenges we have is uh, is switching off uh, and or more importantly, living in the present. You yeah. know? And and I, uh, you know, one of the practices that I uh, practice uh, recently and I have been doing for probably a year now is, is the art of meditation mm-hmm. and that, what that does is centers me to to live in the present. You know, the past is long gone. The future hasn't even happened. Today is a gift, and it's being in the present. Absolutely. Um, yeah, pretty cool stuff. Hey, before we finish up, I've got a couple other quick questions, if I can, Doc. Of course. Um, I, 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 well, I don't mind calling you Oe because it's uh, Oart. It's a pretty cool surname, and that's where we get the Oe from. Tell me, with so many things going on. You've spoken a little bit about the importance of of being an employer of choice. Mm. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to explore that a little bit more because you know uh, I, I mentioned him a couple of times because he's had a big influence on my life. Uh, Robbie Hadded, my partner, mm. and, and he told me early doors, Jason. Uh, the definition of a business is an entity with a view to make profit, leveraging off other people's time. Mm. Now, if you take that definition, the other people, our team, some people call them staff or employees, but our team, yeah, they are. Critical, one would argue the most critical part of our business. How do we become the employer of choice? So I'm pleased that I've got a chance to talk about that stuff because I've spent now well over two years just studying, you know, whether you talk about it at the economic end, human capital, workforce, through to the individual and their sense of autonomy and purpose and um, value-driven work that they do. So... Being employer of choice, um, it sounds like you know a, a badge that, pe- but it's it's actually become substantial and very important mm. um, for all the reasons you mentioned before. Labor markets tight, there's a lot of competition for talent. People want a stable workforce. Attrition and retention are both very important things to look at. They affect the PNL. They affect the bottom line. Mm. Learning and development, rehiring, training, all that stuff's very expensive. So whatever you can do to mitigate that risk as a business is important. Part of mitigating that risk is becoming an employer of choice, but not just in words. It's got to have meaning and it's got to have sustainable meaning that results in an employee having, and it comes down to a few things, an employee having autonomy in their role, feeling as though they're doing purpose-driven work, um, feeling valued by their employer, um, having the tools to take care of themselves within their work, Having learning and development opportunities in there, all of that stuff, and and these are these. Are, now I'm gonna, I'm I'm actually um, not stealing's the wrong word, but I've learned a lot from uh, my my new colleagues in the human resources space. One of those is is HR leader, thought leader Rhonda Brighton Hall, who's taught me a lot. Um, she's associated with Australian Australian HR Institute, and I've I've really come to understand that whole space, and I think that one of the big steps for business leaders is to stop looking at HR as an expense as a or cost, a line yeah. item as a cost. Because you mentioned before, Robbie, your business partner, mm. when you're leveraging others' time in order to make a profit and you say others, the, the key point is having others, they're an asset mm. because it's their work that ultimately generates the profit. It's like a computer. We look at computers as assets. Mm. Human beings are the most powerful asset. That's right. You've got, so how do you optimise them? How, how do you make them go from 70% to 95%? You know, when, when your computers slow down, what do we do? We 
what do you, you upgrade them, you get an antivirus software. Sometimes you need that you need to replace them. But ideally, with a person, you can provide them with the opportunity to upgrade and upskill and remain uh, and feel safe and psychologically safe. And so I, I think that's the basis upon which CU Health was was built for businesses. Yep. The healthcare side is about making sure they remain healthy and well today and into the future, which is obviously going to help them in their everyday life and their work. All right. Um- I think we're just about done, are we? Uh, but before we do, uh, I, I, I just want to say, I, I personally, uh, I'm grateful for you giving up your time to share with us this story. Um, there'll no doubt be people listening and watching our little podcast that might be interested in reaching out and finding out more about CU Health. And um, I just, and I do this for all our guests. How would they get in contact uh, to find out more about CU Health and whether or not it's suitable for their business? I mean, and firstly, thank you so much for the opportunity to share um, what we're doing. And I'd be delighted to first, I'd be delighted to be contacted by any of your business owners to discuss it with them. Um, I mean, on LinkedIn, I'm easily found. I'm easily found there. So that's from a personal perspective. From the business's perspective, cuhealth.com.au, that's very simple, cuhealth.com.au. It has a form there for people to inquire. Yep. Um, one of our team will be in touch. And we take every inquiry uh, very seriously. We we want to we treat our clients and customers like we want people to treat their employees. Yeah, you know. So it's very important to us, and be delighted to help any of the businesses out. That's awesome, mate, Dr. Pat. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.